I probably have. Um, I have four things at most. Okay, I think if you do four, Matt does one, and I do a couple, that would kind of be a lot. Um, but yeah. maybe not. I mean, we can decide it on yeah, time. Yeah, we'll play exactly. We use some elaborate hand signals. Yep. I think if we think that it's going an appropriate amount, I will try to like put my hands in the shape of a clock that is directly up and down. Okay. But if it goes too long, I'll like move the hour hand. Okay. Although both my hands are the same length, which will make it difficult for me to indicate which is the hour. You could hand. use fingers instead. No, I think I'll I'll curl one in and try to rotate. So this one is the hour hand. Okay. And then. So what's our target time? Also, you gotta keep in mind that it's reflected. Oh well, that could be confusing, couldn't it? <laughs> what? I'll just make a bird call. I think that would be better. Welcome back to the Syntax Podcast. You're here with Ethan, Fernando, and Matt, and we are very excited to complain about more things and share our thoughts that no one else has been willing to listen to. So today is Quick Hits. I believe this is our third episode of Quick Hits, uh, and Fernando will be starting us off. Well, I'm going to jump in here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. And say my first point would be, um, you know, I just can't stand it when you're doing a podcast and you have an intro where you introduce yourself every time and then someone just decides to go off script and then just introduce everyone else. So any thoughts or um, – There's no script. We live a wild life where we make up the script yeah, as we I go. Mean, I think syntax is definitely one of those very long-running traditions in American society and you kind of deviated from it, so – yeah, be, so that's why I was going to hijack. News for sure. Yeah, that's why I went to hijack point number one. But with that said, on to point number two. Yeah, yeah. so well, that was that was a good quick. Despite hit. the fact that that was a very quick hit, man. The quickest. <laughs> despite the fact that um, Ethan kind of ruined the intro, he did bring up the point about us complaining. And if you look at my notes, the we have a document where we list potential topics for quick hits, and my little section basically has a phrase colon stupid and then the next line is another phrase that i think about colon stupid so you can hear about all the things i think are dumb and one of them the stupid was parenthetical and i wasn't sure how to take that yeah i think it was kind of like a when a joke gets repeated multiple times and you don't actually need to say the punchline, so it's just kind of there for mm, um clarity and we're going to start with that one actually so the topic reads Algorithms that amplify trends and tendencies, parentheses, stupid. And the best example, really the primary example I can think of is news apps that you might click on coverage of any sort of issue that's in the news. And if it happens to be a source that has some slight um, lean or bias, which pretty much all sources do to some extent, your news app starts feeding you sources of similar bias and it just kind of goes into a devolving spiral where you have a you start with a moderately a, a piece that leans moderately one way or another and then next thing you know you're reading like the most far right or far left analysis you can find and for some people that's probably what they want but for a lot of people and in the interest of honest news consumption it's probably a bad thing so why do people do this is there an incentive in these like I guess, is that just how the algorithms are built in terms of determining what you like to read? Is there a way around this thing that is parentheses stupid? Well, I mean, the, the incentives are clear, right? And it it happens that, like, with news, we can see obvious negative consequences. But in other parts of society, this is really beneficial. Like, um, like uh, moderated timelines. I know everybody actually kind of hates, like, their moderated timeline on Facebook and Twitter. People do complain about them. But, like, there's a reason Facebook and Twitter will rearrange your timeline so that you see things that they think you want to see it's because it causes people to be more engaged with the content when they are allowed to pick things for you that they expect you to like the problem with news is that like we have a you know there's there's no uh importance that i see everybody's facebook activity equally but it is important that i consume news in some equal manner so it just happens that that recommender systems which are naturally built to recommend to you things that you like based on what you've done in the past can be problematic with news and I think a, a very interesting example of that is YouTube, right? Because YouTube has one of the most well-known recommender systems because videos will autoplay if you just let them roll. And uh, you can go down like some crazy avenues of things that you did not expect to see based on what you click on first. Now, this is fine if you like happen to enjoy videos about space 
then you end up like on a different video, but like on astrophysics. But it's a much bigger issue if you're in the news and like suddenly you're on conspiracy theories four videos later. So this is why I think you've just got to throw wrenches in, in every machine and algorithm possible. So for example, I have uh, I, I used to regularly shop at Kroger, and I've never gotten a Kroger <laughs> card, but I've always requested a new Kroger card every time I've gone. <laughs> And I've never registered said Kroger card. So you're welcome, Ethan. Uh, <laughs> but you got to throw the robots off your tracks a little bit. Why? <laughs> why Why don't you just use the card the cashier has? Well, sometimes. So I've done that before, but they got stingier with me. Maybe they recognized me and they were like, there's a reason why we do this. Um, and so they wouldn't <laughs> offer to use their own card. So then I decided that the best way for me to guarantee I'd get the discounts uh, without actually having to sign up would just be to request one every single time. And they'll give you one every time. Yeah. So Speaking from the perspective of someone who works for like the administrative side of the company and uh, the analytics department specifically, you have met the cashiers we most want to find, but never do. <laughs> the ones who actually want you to get a card. Well, I guess that's effective too. So, Fernando, what I'm thinking is probably every time you read a news article, you should go buy a new phone. <laughs> that's right. It's the only way around it. Or go buy a different newspaper if you are. That'll the fool them. In the analog I world. Do. Yeah, they'll try careful on those newspapers there. <laughs> Yeah, that's. I do think really good. Oh, keep going. No, I mean, I was just gonna say, make a sarcastic comment, non-sarcastic comment about how that's a really good idea. Um, I mean, recommender systems are like, you know, the the examples I gave earlier probably aren't the best because I was reflecting on them. And like, the best example of this is Amazon, right? Like, you go on Amazon, you see ten things on the main page where you're like, ah, like I would like at least three of those. Like, that's really cool, Um, and it saves you a bunch of time shopping. And there's other systems that are like that too in your life, and. For a lot of people, I suspect that that kind of recommender system in news is really useful. Like, a lot of people do read news from a partisan perspective and are only reading um, Fox or, like, uh, does MSNBC do print? I don't know. The equivalent print source. So, like, I I think that these things are built because people respond well to them. And there's probably uh, a good chance that most people are responding well, even if, if, like, some of us are irritated by it. It's going to be an issue societally but that doesn't mean that like there's any incentive in the industry to change it plus i also think that uh, you know i think in this discussion we're talking about particularly partisan news um and political news but in the context of other news when i read a site like um like ethan's favorite site the ringer um and you have a uh like a like a college football article too like the i get recommended you know just everything about alabama football which is really all i want to read um, if we're being honest, on any of those sites, um, so I feel like or it does any function. Site, really, <laughs> really, actually, yeah. So for me, I, you know, would it benefit me to read something other than news about Alabama football? Would it benefit society? Probably. Um, <laughs> do I want to? No. Am I thankful for the algorithms that give me more Alabama football news? Yes. Um, but um, yeah, that's all I wanted to say. Well, I'm always worried to click on articles by The Ringer for fear of being recommended more articles that have no actual content <laughs> and are just opinions and pop culture references. Yeah, but honestly, they like make me wish that I knew more pop culture uh, because they just dive in. Like the, They're like analysis of fictional TV shows and their characters. Um, it is really incredible that they have the same – I don't know how those pitches work, but it would be like – you know, you'd sit around, I don't know, I've never worked for a news organization, but you'd sit around and someone would be like, I've got an idea. And then they say something like, okay, I am going to go through and analyze every single Friday Night Lights football game and I'll post it out. And someone's like, great idea. And then it goes to the next person and it goes, I have an idea. And they go, I am going to tell you the most miserable and the happiest office characters. And then it goes to the next person and they all just pitch these things and build yeah, on it's, Yeah, oh, it's so dumb. I, I watch it and I'm like, this is where society's resources are going to chronicle the nine angriest faces russell westbrook has made this season like really oh it just kills me that seems pretty worthwhile it also seems like totally something you would see on buzzfeed and if that's not the highest standard of journalism i do i do feel that the ringer is sort of like buzzfeed in disguise but the what's interesting 
about that point is they've moved further that direction. So there's obviously a financial incentive. There's an oh, there's people here. that like it for sure. Yeah, but people like fun. BuzzFeed too. Really, <laughs> the, mean, like, really the best. Everybody of, wants to know the best type of headline is the headline that says something and then follows it up with a teaser like you won't believe what happened next. <laughs> like a click hole article. Okay, well, we should probably move on past that one. <laughs> well, I think uh, the takeaway quote from that is uh, you've got to throw the robots off your trail, not kill them. <laughs> Absolutely. The singularity, it's coming. Yeah, we got a lot of good advice on that one. So, uh, okay, so this one, like most of my points, is basically just me complaining. And uh, it might be total nonsense, and I'm looking for you two to, to turn me around if I'm wrong. I'm probably wrong. That's but all I do. recently, <laughs> recently, uh, I fell ill. I was sick for about a week and a half. And um, at the beginning of this illness, I went to the doctor and I explained to him my symptoms. And he was like, mm, okay, well, like it could be this or it could be that. And then he did a couple tests and he came back and he was like, I know what it is. And he told me what the illness was. And then he described to me what was going to happen to me. And he was like, you will feel symptoms for four to six weeks, but some people feel them for up to three months. Um, you could have an enlarged spleen, so you should be careful about exercise, um, but probably you'll be okay. And he said, maybe you'll get a really bad sore throat. And basically described to me that almost anything could happen to me for basically any length of time. And he said, I can give you medication, which there is some evidence could make you slightly better, but probably not very much. And in general, my experience here was that basically I was out with a shaman who had given me extremely generic, like, fortune teller-esque advice that would describe anything that could happen to me. And in fact, this did not help me very much, and I got much worse over several days and had to go to another doctor who gave me more advice, which wasn't very helpful. And I had to go to another doctor two days later who gave me more advice. And then I went to another doctor two days later who actually said the last doctor before that was wrong and gave me a different prescription. My frustration with the medical system is basically this. We don't have any actual answers. It all seems to be like rough estimates and oh prognostications. So this, I'm upset about you complaining about this because I feel like this is exactly what um, the prophet of data literacy, Nate Silver, wants doctors to do. Right? Like, give a range... Oh, but I'm not upset with the doctors, to be clear. Okay, I... I... I'm upset that medicine is so bad. Mm. See, this I, is I... why... Well, th- this yes, is why I probably stated just... my case poorly, but I'll step back. This is why you, you just go to an astrologist and you save mm-hmm. yourself the money. <laughs> well, hard to argue with that, I suppose. Have you, uh, have you tried um, webmd.com? So, okay, so this leads me into another part, but let me let me finish the first bit. So the, the first bit is basically like, in general, we don't have any idea what's happening. And when people are sick, we have like sort of things we do that maybe will help. And meanwhile, especially if you're embedded in like an engineering field, all the time you're like, the lack of precision in this is just infuriating. Like we have no idea of any of the answers and we can't really solve things. We just hope they go away and the body mostly handles it. And even some things it's like, ah, oh, well we can like relieve the symptoms, but your body will fight this off in some time, probably, but you might die. And it's just so annoying compared to the precision of many other fields. But do you have, moving on, do you propose an alternative. I just think medicine should keep up. <laughs> we've like invented. We've gone in the last hundred years from what? We've gone from like horse and buggies to the real prospect of cars that drive us around. Like, what are you doing over there, medicine? <laughs> keep up. You've invented like three vaccines for three diseases. Like, that is not very much. I understand that it's hard. Like, I'm not making the case it's not difficult, and maybe this is merited. But I do think that like. There's got to be some issue that medicine moves so insanely slowly compared to technology. I think fields. you're pretty wrong about medicine uh, moving insanely slowly, but I'm curious what Matt thinks on this one. Wait, yeah, I, I kind of would back that up. I would think that the medical advances that have been made in the last several hundred years far outkick anything we've ever done anywhere else. Well, you're making, it sounds like you're making the judgment that the value of them has been higher, which might be true, but it's not my case, really. Like, the amount of work the amount of progress that has been made does not appear to stand up to any other field. Okay, and well, we've put like way more resources. So, into so there's, so here's, I think if you're, if we're looking for like an actual reason why, in your opinion, it's moving slowly, which I disagree with, but to take your point, I think because part of the issue is that for a relatively, and I use the word relatively small amount of effort, you can get extremely valuable advances in medicine, right? So like. Um, plumbing and like 
sanitary sewers, which isn't medicine per se, but you know, you got to understand the biology. But it's not research. Like, I just don't think it stands up on the research. Okay, front. bad example. Let's use vaccines, which are, um, no, because I, I, I'm going to defend your point a little bit and then still disagree <laughs> with it. But so, like, certain vaccines in this broad spectrum of what modern medicine can do, like producing a polio vaccine is pretty elementary. Um, like we've been doing that for decades, but especially at a time when polio is very prevalent, its value is extremely high, right? Because you can immunize hundreds of thousands, millions of people and really improve the quality of life for millions of people around the world. Whereas like something that's really advanced, like, Figuring out how a medicine is going to react based to a how a specific individual will react to a medicine using you know like their medical history and their genome and stuff like that, you're investing a ton of effort into something that may or may not provide returns for one individual. So that is like an actual barrier to large scale progress. I think that some very high tech advancements affect a very small amount of people or a relatively small amount of people and for how much investment financial investment has to go into them a lot of times it's not worth it yeah i think that's right i mean i also think that the incentive to innovate is not there the same in medicine because uh like like patents for medicines last a really long time and and it's really hard to disrupt and stuff i like i i see many of the reasons but i just think if you like read a book about the history of humanity you would be astonished at how slowly medicine moves compared to other things i i really disagree with that but. so i i yeah i i lean towards fernando but i i see what you're saying ethan uh one thing that i think and as someone who has no medical background whatsoever i just allow me to pontificate <laughs> for a second um <laughs> I think that like I, like I read this book recently on sleep, and they were talking about how awful sleep pills, sleeping pills are are for you. And so like I think the idea with something like sleeping pills is that you develop, you you have kind of a baseline understanding of what the problem is or what you think indicates a problem, and then you develop a treatment for whatever um, whatever problem you have uh, you have identified or whatever you know, indicators lagging, and then you're implementing it. And I think what medicine may be coming around to in the more normalized treatment of, of non-life-threatening things is, uh, I don't know, in certain situations like sleeping pills, like understanding that holistically there's more going on than what than uh, kind of the, the precision that something like providing sleeping pills as a solution to getting a, uh, to a lack of sleep uh, provides, if that makes sense. That was a little... Uh, yeah, I, it does make sense, I guess. But part of it is the, like... And what you're getting at there, I think, is that we don't understand the body as a whole at all. Yes, we have no idea how certain things affect definitely, other things. Definitely true. But because that is so the problem. But <laughs> that, like, is the problem. It, we understand it way better than we did 20 years ago. And then we understand... Not as well as we understand the different levels of computers. Look at how much we've done in computers yes, over the last 20 years. I agree, but the body is also infinitely more complex. I don't actually agree with that. That's a point that many people have made to me, and I do not agree with that. I think the difference is we designed of, one and we didn't design the other. I think our lack of understanding... Yeah, so that's obviously part of it. Um, I think our lack of understanding of exactly how the body works is a good piece of evidence that the body is extremely, extremely complex, more so than a lot of other things that we do understand. Uh, I don't think our lack of understanding of something is evidence that it's complex. It could be evidence that we've studied the field poorly. I think and I do think of, that's also true. In I medicine. think it's part of um, the evidence that it's complex. I also think that we have had, we have long had um, sort of the wrong attitude towards medicine where like, I, I would favor a much more aggressive approach to things that are wrong. Like uh, your arm is, uh, uh, I don't know, has um, hives. I would say like cut it off and replace it with a robot arm right now. <laughs> like replace everything. The human body, very bad at almost everything. We can fix everything with robot arms, though. Like, time to just, like, build stuff. And obviously we're not there yet, but I don't think that that's a very popular opinion. It definitely isn't in medicine. But, like, get rid of as much as my physical, uh, as much of my physical body as possible because it's very unreliable and it seems like we can't fix anything. So, that's probably the end of my point, really, but I've just really lost patience with the human body I and think, the medical institutions. I think that's that a different it. point. Like, I mean, I don't particularly agree with that we should replace our arms with robot arms, but I think that's a fair point if you just, like, I don't know, think our arms are pretty sh but, like, I don't think that's evidence for medicine. 
I still don't think that's evidence for medicine not having advanced. Like, don't you think like brain surgery is evidence that we understand the body much more precisely and can do things with it much more precisely than we used to? I mean, like we know it better, but I wouldn't say like much better. I I think if you wrote a book about what has happened to humanity in 150 years, I think that like, you know, there's a hundred points in there. Maybe like five would be medicine. It would be, it would be all things that we invented and like ways society developed and new governments. It would be nothing about medicine. What about like medicine like doesn't compare. Eradicating polio. Well, I think that's one of the five, right? <laughs> okay, but also I, I mean, it is though, right? Like, yeah, how many no, things it, are in there? Yeah, it absolutely would be. I think. Have Have you guys ever looked at uh, our world in data? No. Yes. Oh, you guys definitely should, Ethan. You should definitely check it out. But uh, listeners, I don't know if you've seen this, but it, it was put together with uh, probably the last six months. But it's a fascinating look at how the world's gotten better, and uh, and uh, they just have a uh, they have a lot of data. Obviously, our world in data and graphs associated with everything from like um, everything from politics uh, to um, violence to health and the health ones are fascinating i don't have any in front of me right now but go check them out because i think the world has gotten significantly better due to health initiatives than we probably see evidence of uh, oh totally agree i will not dispute that totally agree okay fair okay um i will go from this quick hit to another quick hit and then cede my time but um, this is a very related quick hit, and it is a cultural problem around medicine that is not related to me like complaining about medicine moving slowly. Um, you will find, if you spend a lot of time researching things on the internet, as I do, I am a chronic internet researcher. Before I buy a product, before I like work on a project, I read tons of things on the internet. And so my inclination when um, I have any question that is medically related is to go on the internet and be like, what can I learn about this? And the problem is that there is, because of presumably legal liability, there's an extreme aversion to giving you direct advice about, like, it is okay to do this when you are uh, hurt or sick or something, right? Like, always the advice is hyper-conservative, right? And so you get, it actually is like a boy who cried wolf problem. You have this issue that because nobody wants to give you any specific advice that says, like, in general, it's okay to do this if you have a problem. So, um... What's an example? So, okay, so I, I just said I was sick. I had mono. So during that time, they say, like, be cautious about exercising. But, like, if you look that kind of stuff up on the Internet, often it's, like, be very careful about exercising and don't exercise until your doctor tells you it's okay, right? Like, never do anything until your doctor specifically tells you it's okay because we are not going to be legally liable for the four people out of a 10 million who die, right? And because of this boy who cried wolf problem, I think that people get worse medical information because it's everything is, like, it could kill you. So a good example is like, um, which one of the painkillers is it? I think it's Tylenol with alcohol um, is like occasionally very dangerous. But if you read warnings, it's like it is 100% of the time like super dangerous. You can never do this. And there's a few other things like that. I Don't quote me on that, right? Like, please, no one use Tylenol Is it, Tylenol, is with it alcohol, Tylenol or, or aspirin? Uh, I don't know if aspirin is, but I believe Tylenol is. Oh, okay. Everybody, please do your own research. Do not trust I'm us on this. I'm confused why you call it a boy, a boy who cried wolf problem. It's because if you chronically overestimate the magnitude of possible disaster, people don't trust your actual disaster predictions. Oh. Right? So actually, um, speaking of Nate Silver, in his book, he calls this out about weather forecasters. The weather forecasters uh, routinely overestimate the magnitude of dangerous weather events because they think that like it's, it's more dangerous to underestimate them. But the problem is that it leads to people um, assuming that there are overestimates and then not acting appropriately in truly dangerous situations. So a good example is like if you look online for a mild disease like the cold and it's like um, don't uh, don't uh, do very strenuous physical exercise because it could be dangerous. And you also look online about a much more dangerous disease. I don't know what an example of that is that also says don't do strenuous physical exercise because it might be dangerous. Those aren't the same in magnitude. But because everything is hyper-conservative in its advice, it leads people to underestimate the truly dangerous things. And I think this is like a real problem because it, people aren't able to self-diagnose either. Like everything is like almost everything on the internet. It's like, oh, you have foot pain? Go see your doctor. No, don't see your doctor. Like only sometimes is it appropriate to see your doctor. And then in the few cases where you like really do need to see your doctor because of specific symptoms, it's important to know like here you actually need to go to your doctor. I, I feel like they're... they're kind of two things that I'd like to throw in. I mean, certainly there's a level of calibration that's off because you're, you're a boy who cries wolf problem definitely exists. Like there's no 
there, you know, you never find information that really shows a spectrum of when we talk about danger, how likely we think that is. But I do think that goes back to this whole, we think that is like, if we think of all the things that have been said about medicine over time, that's been wrong. Um, I really think it's tied very much to the first one that like, we don't have precision. So we're not going to pretend we have precision. Not that we need, uh, and, and I think a good example of this would be the development of the opioid crisis. So I'm not an expert on this, but um, whatever the company was that advertised that these drugs were non-addictive that they were giving us painkillers. Now, they were wrong, but the doctors gave them out all the time because they're like, yeah, we've got non-addictive painkillers. And so that leads to a situation you know, where a lot of people become addicted to those things. And that seems to me like a better solution or a better uh, approach to that would be as cautious as possible. And I think a lot of people um, rightfully approach situations um, that could possibly turn into what, you know, something as terrible as the opioid crisis has turned into given false information. I don't know if I agree. Like that is that is one example of potentially many. <clears throat> like think how many drugs are blocked going to market because of potential downsides. But like think how many lives would be saved. Like it's important to think opportunity cost. Like all this stuff has value. And like the opioid crisis might be one of the worst examples of this. There's another one. Um, well, yeah, I got to oh, get my best argument for it. <laughs> yeah. Well, there, there's a really famous drug, and I can't think what it was, um, sometime in the like 1950s, 60s, 70s, that um, was prescribed to pregnant women for some reason that resulted in bad birth defects. Accutane. Uh, because, is that what it was? Yeah, yeah for Because they were, they're pretty sure it was safe, but it was not. And like these cases do happen, but I, nobody ever measures how many lives are lost because of the medicines that don't get approved. Right, so and it's just like, actually, uh, I um, suspect that that calculus example, and, I mean, would be really telling. Not a great example because acne is like not a life-threatening condition. You're right, generally. you're right. But like, we'll, we'll take it because, um, so another, there was the birth defect issue, so they just stopped prescribing it to women who are, you know, like, who might be pregnant age. in the yeah. near future. Um, but then there was also the issue where it was connected to like extreme depression in certain people and uh, several children who were prescribed with it um, committed suicide and had other issues. And so like there are doctors who talk about who had prescribed it and s saw a couple of these cases and they talk about how like, well, it was obviously extremely tragic and it's something that they ha had to grapple with the rest of their medical career. But they also acknowledge that it was, you know, like three or four cases in thousands of prescriptions they've made. And one doctor told, and maybe this is anecdotal, but like, I think it's a good guide. One doctor talked about how he prescribed it to one child. He noticed some behavior changes and then he had them um, stop taking Accutane or whatever generic equivalent and see a psychiatrist to help the kid kind of get back on an even keel. And so I think maybe this does link in with the opioid example that and medicine in general that there are always side effects that you should be or potential side effects that you should be aware of but if you kind of give the prescription and then forget about them then those handful that are, are, have these negative side effects are going to really fall prey to them whereas if you give the prescription and do your due diligence as a doctor and the patient has to help as well in following up and kind of keeping an eye on his overall health not just like has your acne gone away, but just paying attention to his overall health, that's kind of the pathway to using drugs that obviously do have risk in a way that doesn't just stop them from being used at all. It does require like more effort and on both the doctor and the patient's part. Um, and it's much easier to prescribe it, look at the acne being fixed and just forget about it. But I agree, it would be, especially for drugs that treat higher stakes issues than acne it'd be a shame just to block all of them um and instead it's worth putting in the effort to kind of monitor your patient i mean again giving advice to doctors i have no yeah. medical background but that seems like a reasonable approach it would be I interesting guess, uh, keep going right? i should say it would be interesting <clears throat> uh something that i just don't know all about but the drug approval process for the fda of what that what that like what that's like because that seems more relevant to this conversation than necessarily the you know, what doctors can or can't prescribe or what they choose to prescribe. Yeah. Um, I think that's definitely worth doing a podcast on, um, except it's just, 
it would take a lot of research. So hopefully we can bring someone who knows what they're talking about on. Um, because it is interesting and all the different kind of things that regulatory agencies need to balance. And there's interesting market forces of like, you do want to incentivize companies to research rare diseases and stuff, but then that's how you have these extremely protective um, patent laws and stuff. I think the summary of my position on this is that that caution is good, but overestimation of danger is bad. Like a lot of people because of the, it's like an opportunity cost fallacy where people don't see what is lost, but like the overestimation of danger does have long-term bad effects because it causes people to underestimate the danger of things that are truly dangerous. And like the, the solutions that are proposed that you're saying that's like, we need to vet things carefully. Like, yes, obviously we do, but like in saying, like Mac, you said, like it's dangerous not to know if opioids were addictive or not. Like we need to have a number on that, even if we're wrong. Like to just say like we're going to be wrong sometimes, so we should make no estimate is not a solution. Like we need to have estimates, and we want the estimates to be as good as possible. But we still need estimates because that is important in figuring out like the relative value of things, whether it is worth taking a medication or not. And I, I just think it's dangerous because people. People are going to make systematic mistakes when they constantly read um, overestimation of danger, especially on the internet. But even from your doctor, you get that kind of thing. And like, I've gotten some hyper cautious advice from my doctor that it's like, obviously, that's not advice that I can follow. Like, nobody's going to do that. Yeah, I, I think that I completely agree when it comes to systematic bias and not factoring in um, the opportunity cost of lost benefits. But in particular with medicine, uh, I think that. There's so much that our bodies can naturally do um, that we don't really have a good grasp on what happens when we, uh, when we use different uh, chemicals to offset different imbalances or things like that, that we have to be far more careful because we don't understand a lot of the things that our bodies can naturally do and naturally heal. So, um, I, I agree with that perspective in the case of non-life-threatening disease. Yeah. But in the case of life-threatening disease, probably like almost any risk with medicine is, is worth it. Yeah. Um, that's fair. And that was, um, at least in theory, there was a recent um, recent bill that just got signed to law about that idea behind it is to increase the availability of um, drugs that are earlier on in the approval process to people who are who do have um, terminal illnesses without yeah. any who they don't have any other like recourse reasonable pathway to a cure. So I do think it's something that's being thought about. Um, the whole reg like regulation is always really complex, especially in something like this, where like, you know, you're playing the quantifying risk game for something that is like very high profile. And if you get it wrong, it looks really bad. Yeah. I just think you have to try. It's not trying doesn't make things better. It makes things worse. But okay, after after my two slow hits, I see the floor. All right, well, I'll step into step into the spotlight, if you will, with a quick hit. Um, so my <laughs> yes, you definitely will. <laughs> I will. So okay, um, you know, this year one thing I've done a better job of than I normally do is I feel like I have read a lot more and read a lot more books than I normally do, uh, particularly nonfiction books. But I've been juggling with this. And I think I've been sitting at maybe like a three to one complete book to not finish the book ratio, in particular for <laughs> nonfiction books. And I'm wondering, because I think, mm, no, I'm wondering your thoughts on what the ideal ratio should be for your finish to not finish books. Because I used to be like, you should try to finish all books that you start. I've changed oh, my boo. mind completely. No, no, because, no. Yes. yeah, the, the guys, come on. I, I've changed my mind. <laughs> I, I no, we're I, just booing you, yeah. Matt. And then I turned nine years old, okay? Uh, and no, but uh, I, I'm curious. Yeah, what, what, is, what is your perspective on the optimal finish to not finish? I think, I think you're using the wrong metric here. Um, I think the ratio is not super important. I think what you want is, I mean, like the ideal is just like time spent on books you enjoy to time spent on books you don't enjoy right so like, ah, but as soon as you realize you don't like a book you need to cut that off immediately um, okay so so but i'd like to preface this but i don't think 
you should be shooting. I think it indicates there's an optimal ratio that indicates that your selection, pre- your mm. how you select books is is either correct or incorrect. And I don't think it's I, completely a function of. Well, it's obviously one to one. If you were if you were a hundred percent accurate at selecting books, it would be no. You one mean to one. you mean infinity. or it would be it would be no, zero. You, okay, yeah. so I could definitely if my goal was to yeah. Uh, Yes, I get maximize the the percentage. Yeah, if my goal is just to maximize the percentage of books that I will finish, I could do that. But I would also be carving myself into a niche that, like, I would never expand outside of this. So my question is, would be more like how How do you balance the optimal percentage to balance, like, pushing yourself into regions you're like, maybe I like this book, maybe I won't, uh, versus not. Yes, I guess I just like want to caution people who are making like these decisions. Not to be too focused on the end result of the complete to not complete ratio, right? Like, um, I don't know. I feel like it's just just like if you have the goal to finish every book that you read, like that. I don't know. I just you want to avoid blanket rules as a whole. So I do think there's probably like a better than some ratios are better than other, but like. I don't know. It's more about the process of how are you selecting your books. Well, obviously, but what, what, what it would do is it would iterate back and forth. So if, yeah, yeah, if, yeah. if I looked back and I said, well, half the books I started and finished, that probably says something about my book selection process that I should probably improve upon. Or that might be ideal because that might mean I am uh, – you know, another problem that I've had is, is my books tend to overlap and cite I, each other more often than – than I would probably like, which indicates that I'm probably reading too much of them in the same sphere. A self-reinforcing. Oh, algorithm. it's your it's your book recommender algorithm. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. The robots are hot on your trail. It's very true. Um, all right, I need to burn so, all of my books now. I'm just gonna go with an anecdote here and say that I have started reading Catch Twenty Two twice, um, and stopped like sixty pages in both times. Really regretted it the second time because I knew what I was getting in. Um, so, I don't know. I feel like... Well, I, I do think it's important to specify nonfiction books because um, nonfiction books, to me, portray, like, a, a very palpable... Um, uh, they, they have a very palpable reward when it comes to um, a transfer of information. So you're either getting something out of it and you can kind of know at what point. When you get into fiction books, I think there's value in pushing through and persevering a lot more than I think there is in a nonfiction book. Totally agree. The value proposition is clear with nonfiction. Yeah. Are, are you getting information that you will retain? Yes. So what this reminds me of, when you say that there's this like trade-off, right? Like you could, you could make it so 100% of the books you read are worth reading by only reading one book every four years. Um, or you could like go for reading all the good books and end up like wasting a bunch of time. Yeah. Well, so there's, there's something actually, this is often used in, um, in search results. There's metrics called precision and recall and precision is the percentage of the results that you return that are accurate, that are like good answers. And recall is the percentage of the overall good matches that you manage to find. If that makes any sense. And so you could you could gain the system and return everything and have 100% precision but really bad recall or vice versa. No, and so you're kind of dealing you, with the same the thing here, around? right? If you oh, you're right. Yeah, I'm sorry. It would be 100% recall and, yeah, bad precision. Yeah. Um, so you're dealing with the same thing here. But I think you would benefit if you really want to find this answer. You benefit from, like, actually labeling those metrics, right? Like the percentage of books you read that are actually good and – I guess the other one is the number of good books that you read. And those are two things that you want to optimize. And I would actually experiment with varying levels of selectivity and see how those metrics change and figure out what the relative value of the two is. Like you could actually write this as a formula, right? And try to optimize it experimentally. It would take you like several years, but you could at least get a good idea through a couple months of experimenting with how selective you are with books. Yeah, I was preferring just to think about it this week and then throw it out there than to actually do any real, <laughs> real effort on this. Yeah, uh, honestly, but it, but it a, a couple months. Experiment. You need a lot more than a couple months, I think, because like, how many books, nonfiction books, are you reading in a couple months? Like, most in a couple people... months, I probably read like uh, anywhere from fifty to sixty <laughs> <laughs> a day. Yeah, a day. Um, Have you guys seen that Elon Musk claims that he read two books a day as a child? Two books a day? <laughs> yeah. Like, what kind of books? Like, Green Eggs and Ham? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, when he was 16, he was working on Green Eggs and the Ham. The most outrageous thing Elon Musk has ever said right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I do have some thoughts on this, right? So I uh, I grew up definitely with the principle of, like, you finish books and you start 
and have moved far away from that now. And part of it is because I've been reading more nonfiction. And Matt, I totally agree with what you're saying. So, like, Catch-22 is a book that I've persevered through. Even though, honestly, like, did I get anything out of Catch-22? Probably not. Um, weird book. A lot of weird stuff. But, like, ah, I forced myself to get through it. And maybe, like, that had some some benefit to my, I don't know, my perseverance in general. But uh, probably not. But with nonfiction, it's, like, sometimes... And often, when things are boring, I find it's because I don't find the information pertinent to me, or I don't find the information to be, like, something I even believe. Um, and so I've been more willing to put things down. A good example of that is uh, I loved Sapiens, the book that actually we did a podcast review of. Oh, isn't that by um, Phil's friend Yuval? Yes, Phil, Phil and Yuval, yes. So, uh, yeah, Yuval also wrote a second book called Homo Deus. And I was determined to read that thing. Like, I got um, more than 100 pages in, and it was just terrible. It was just like him, instead of chronicling the history of humanity and why things happened, him wildly extrapolating to the future. And I eventually was like, I just have nothing to gain from this. Like, I could wildly extrapolate the future based on the last book, too, and I'm getting nothing out of this, and it's very ideological. And now it just sits on my shelf, and honestly, I should go get rid of it, because the temptation to read it again even is dangerous. Like, it's just a waste of time, and I need to not allow myself to waste time reading bad books. And instead, like, I've, I've benefited from having time to read other things. Because I think a real danger is the sort of guilt you have about a bad book, putting it down. And it actually, in my case at least, leads me to read less. Because rather than starting a new book, I'm like, oh, I have that other one I should be reading. And then I just don't read it all because I don't want to read the bad one. So I need to be more willing to be like, I'm done, move on, new book. And as far as bad books go, like, uh, Homo Deus, the way you're explaining it, like, we just need to avoid thinking of or valuing a sunk cost, right? Like, yeah. if we've sunk a day into it, it doesn't make the next day any more worth it. So, and th- I, f- I feel like this also plays into, there's a societal, there, there's, to say, oh, I, I like started reading that book and then I stopped. There, there's kind of like, a, I think a pushback that you can get. In particular, when it comes to, I'm a big fan of Goodreads. I think I get good recommendations. I like seeing what my friends read, things like that. But there needs to be, they have these like automatic buckets that are like, I've read this, I want to read, or something like that. There needs to be like an I started and didn't finish. Because you mm. theoretically should have books. And we should have a society that incentivizes some starting and not finishing books for exactly This is very interesting. I'm in on this idea, yeah. for sure. So yeah. now the... the re- it's just a, it's a... Oh, of course. It's just a new website called Bad Reads. <laughs> Good Reads and Bad Reads. Oh man. So the the, the, the the follow-up question then would be, uh, at what point can you claim that you've read a book? I think you have to get within uh, 5% of the end. Maybe 10% if I'm feeling generous. I think Five. you need to finish it. And if you read 95% of it, you say, I read 95% of that book. Oh, but that seems you, to me like a like a like a poor you, like. Oh, like but no, but this is one of those there. things where if you start setting a percentage, you'll just always be looking for an arbitrary line. So, so you're right in fiction, like in novels, that's totally right. But you know, there's a lot of nonfiction books that people read and they skip a chapter. Right, and then you say, "I read this book, but I skipped the chapter on so and." I don't think that's quite like semantically accurate. Like it would be kind of silly to be like, "I read." Uh, a 400 I read a book that has 400 chapters about different species of monkeys and I skipped the 31st like you would say you read that book uh, I would never say I read that book because I wouldn't <laughs> <laughs> right but there is a point where like the the skipped content is vanishingly small plus and I think this also parlays into audiobooks because uh, with audiobooks, at least my experiences, I tend to miss more information than if I'm reading a book. Yes. And, uh, and I think that's common just because you, you, know, you might zone out, whereas in a book, I'll go back and read the page again. I won't do anything about an audiobook. So then if you listen to an audiobook, you know, is there, have you read that book just off the bat, number one? Or do you have to specify, I've, I've like, listened to that book? And how does that yeah. play? And if you're, if you're willing to say yes to that question, even though you've zoned out for pieces, it starts to get blurry. Like, what if you put your earphones down for a couple seconds while you, I don't know, you like got in the car or something and you miss like four seconds. Is four seconds okay? Is four minutes okay? So really, the only solution to this is if any one of your friends ever tells you they've read a book, you immediately need to start berating <laughs> them with very specific questions about the book <laughs> to determine whether or not they've truly read it. That's, that's that uh, exactly right. That's right. 
I think one of the features on Bad Reads will just be a quiz about every page of the book. <laughs> <laughs> just that you have to prove to read it. I would like to say also that, you know, Catch-22 hate coming along, but I went to trivia last week, and one of the questions was, who wrote Catch-22? And if you're not reading just for the sake of trivia, why even read? That's true. That's valid. <laughs> I can't even think who the author is, and I've read this stupid book. Yeah. Joseph Heller. Oh, yeah. Sounds right. Dumb book. It was dumb. Okay. That's all I got. That wasn't okay. even really a quick hit. Those were like just like no. These know. have been these have been thoughts. but interesting. Yeah. Um, I'm going to end with a story of when I read one book in one day. Um, so in fifth grade, our class read *Number of the Stars* by Lois Lowry, and I loved it. And and again, our teacher read it out loud. So did I really read it? Hard to say. But I no, that's clear. Actually, you definitely wait. Didn't hold read on, it. yeah, you didn't read a book in a <laughs> There's day. No question about it. Out to you. Well, that's the same as like listening to paper. Mm. But I, no, because at least with an audiobook, you're the one who has control over whether or not you're listening to that book at any time. To have your teacher read it out, like you had no choice. You're but what? What if he was book. allowed to ask the teacher to stop and start? No, I could what? still choose. Mm. I could still choose not to listen. I chose countless times to not listen to what professors were saying. But I guess it, is... it poses more of like if you listen to an audiobook, I think you've probably absorbed more material than oh, if your teacher I disagree. just, just I, read I, it I actually to you. disagree with that. Um, well, at least you're the one making the decision to listen to it, as opposed to a teacher just. Uh, I'm not sure. This sorry, I'm just. I, don't know, I mean, I I, I zone out sometimes on podcasts okay. and stuff. So, but if yeah, anyway, I experienced this book in one form or another and i really enjoyed it and i was curious like would it stand up at reading it as an adult and i Oof. read it a couple of weeks ago the short version is it was way better as an adult absolutely loved it really um, there are like little things that you don't catch the first time which aren't like super crucial to the plot or anything like that but little things that i just enjoyed the author pointing out or taking the time to illustrate and um and so the but really the point of this quick hit is the number of the stars was a newberry medal winner which i think is like for best children's or best young adult fiction i think it's best young adult fiction and i'm curious how they choose that award like Ooh, I am somewhat of an expert in this matter. Is it expert is strong? Are there but I any, have read okay, here's, almost here's all. Here's my them. question: Are there any young adults on the panel that? Um, no, definitely not. Yeah, that's why so, they're so bad. Yeah, so it it makes no sense. Right? I don't actually know this. You know, like it might turn out that it's a bunch of teenagers doing this, but like I've read the books, and so many are so bad. Well, so I I feel that a lot of these are better. Like my overall question was: Are good children's books as good when you read them as adults? And if you read Newbery Medal winners, I feel like you're going to get a biased sample where a lot of them are better as adults because the recognition was given by adults, not by the intended audience for which the book was written. And to me, that doesn't seem right. And does it make yeah. sense to have a best young adult book when it's the most enjoyable for adults? There's other issues here, too, though, because I think that the Newbery uh, Medals and Awards, I forget how it was arranged, but I think both are a thing. They also suffer from the issue that um, they're a little bit preachy. Like, a lot of it is, like, curated content for young adults by adult adults who, who like, think that they have an idea of what young people should experience. And when I was really young and started reading the ones for that age, I think they're, like, divided by age in some way. Um, I enjoyed them. But as I got older, I found them more and more, like, like, attempting to describe to me cultural experiences. And I didn't find that an effective way to learn about it. Um and I, my overall experience as I got older was that the Newbery Award books were not at all good. I, one, two of my least favorite books ever, Island of the Blue Dolphins and The Giver, are both Newbery medals. Well, I love The Giver. At least I loved it when I read it in like eighth grade. Oh, also so a little flowery book, but yeah. um, I don't know. You should read them as adult, as an adult and see if uh, they're any better. Also, the beauty, the beauty of reading kids' books as an adult is they take like three hours so the opportunity cost, pretty low. In college, um, I reread what is, in my opinion, the greatest fiction book, Ender's Game. Um, and I Better was, than the Bud Mage trilogy? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, I, I loved it as a kid, but I wondered if it stood up as an adult. And so one day I pulled it up on my phone in a really boring class and started reading. 
And that was probably the most productive I ever was in that class. And I ended up walking around campus with my phone just like glued to my nose for the rest of the day and all of the next day. <laughs> and uh, I finished the book like almost straight through. It was so good. I couldn't believe how much I liked it. And so I do think that it's fun to reread some of that stuff. But not a Newbery Medal winner, so not not a valuable book. Man, Ender's Game, there, there, man, there. I feel like there is no great, you know, I had to read this as a freshman in high school kind of book than, than Ender's Game. Did people like have that. to read that? I didn't, but there were some. There was. Some, I never heard of anybody yeah, being yeah. assigned it, which no, I think no, is part yeah. of why it has such a cult following. Oh, interesting. No, there, I, there were definitely people as freshmen in high school. Um, that is an excellent, yeah. excellent book. It is just iconic. It's I've, so interesting to go back because, um, you know, your experience reading it as like a 12 to 15-year-old is you're reading about – I mean, Ender at the beginning of the book I think is four years old, mm-hmm. but he's a super genius, so he's acting a bit older. But you go back reading as an adult and you experience the trauma of his siblings in a very different way because his older brother is like a psychopath. And you, I don't think you grasp that at all as a kid, but you go back and you read it and you're like, there is like a really, uh, really evocative description of like a 12 year old psychopath in this book who's going to go on to like run the world. And that is like in the book. Um, And it gives you like a different sense of dread than I think you could really conceive of as a kid. And it it's much more of like a dark future of things rather than so just like I think experiencing like Ender's the life. ones the books that are most compelling to reread as adults are the ones that like have these interesting um, reflections on human nature in one like larger sense or another. Because as a kid, a lot of times you're reading it just for like the pure storyline, and the best books in general, like for any sort of fiction, are the ones that I think meld a good narrative with um, some sort of like compelling reflection on people or on society and i think that probably leads to a lot of these books that bother you because they seem like kind of preachy and um like trying to force a narrative on kids but i do think it's it comes from the same uh original goal of wanting to have some sort of like yeah i'm sure you're right but the goal doesn't justify the the poor storyline that we sometimes find sorry you cut out what do you say sorry uh, I said we'll we'll have to edit this. Um, the goal of the goal being admirable doesn't justify that in execution. It's no, no, I, I agree, but I think that's if you're trying to ask the question, which you weren't. But if someone was wondering, like, why are there so many praised children's books that come off as like annoying and preachy? Yeah. I think that's that's why. Yeah, I think you're right. Well. Um, <laughs> all right um well, that Matt, good. do you want to monopolize the outro uh yeah um well this is this has been real and it's been fun and <laughs> and i hope we edit it <laughs> i hope we edit this <laughs> no the yeah, outro was supposed to be like um i'm matt this is fernando and ethan and bye from all of us not gonna let the other people speak okay bye <laughs>